but nobody can thwart the plan of God. Reuben, the oldest brother, rescued Joseph out of their hands. He convinced them not to shed his blood. So you can already see God thwarting the plans of men. They tried to keep what God ordained from coming to pass, but God prevented their schemes from coming to pass. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Fox Den. In my last episode, I pushed pause on my survey of Genesis because I wanted to do something different since I had just lost my mom. But in this episode, I'm going to return to my survey of Genesis. And in order to do this, let me get us up to speed with a quick review. God created all things by the power of his word. He created Adam and Eve, and he put them in the Garden of Eden. Now, keep in mind, God created them without sin. But unfortunately, Adam earned death for all mankind because he disobeyed God by eating the forbidden fruit. And because the serpent, who was Satan, enticed Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, God promised to defeat Satan. And in the remainder of Genesis, and indeed the whole Bible, we see God unfold his promise to defeat Satan and redeem God's people. In Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham to a land that he would give him. God promised him that he would make him a great nation, and through him the nations would be blessed. When we fast forward to the New Testament, we know that Jesus is the one through whom God will bless the nations. But with Abraham, there was a problem. He was old, and his wife was unable to have children. Yet by the sovereignty of God, Abraham's wife had the son that God promised, and his name was Isaac. Years later, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And through Jacob, God would build the nation of Israel, the nation that God promised to Abraham. And through this nation, God would bless the nations. Hundreds of years later, Jesus would come through the line of Jacob, through the nation of Israel. Again, he is the seed of the woman who would defeat Satan. And we see in Genesis that God began to build that nation through Jacob's 12 sons. Now let's look at Genesis chapter 36, which lays out the descendants of Esau. They lived in the land of Edom, which was south of the Dead Sea. And one reason why Moses would have laid out the descendants of Esau was because they were related to Jacob and Isaac. But also they would have problems with Edom as they were on their way to the Promised Land. We see that in Numbers chapter 20. Now, if you remember, Moses wrote Genesis and He's writing to the Israelites who left slavery in Egypt to go to the promised land. He's also writing to the future generations of Israel. Then in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph arrives on the scene. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob, and he was the son of Rachel, the wife that Jacob loved. Verse 2 says that Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers. Now, right after Moses tells us that Joseph brought a bad report, he informs us that Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. It's as if Moses is setting the stage for conflict between Joseph and his brothers because this is key to the Joseph narrative. And because he was the favorite, Jacob gave him a robe of many colors. And Moses tells us why Joseph was the favorite. Verse 3 says, because he was the son of his old age. Well, Joseph's brothers saw that he was the favorite, and they hated him for it. 
It's important for us to see this division between Joseph and his brothers because it's important to the final story of Joseph and his brothers. Well, sometime later, Joseph had a dream. Now, it seems Joseph was oblivious to the animosity his brothers had toward him because after this dream, he told his brothers. And in this dream, they were binding sheaves in the field. And Joseph's sheaf rose up and his brother's sheaves bowed down to his sheaf. Now, sheaf isn't a word that we use very often, so let me quickly define it. A sheaf is basically a bundle of wheat or barley or some kind of grain. Well, when Joseph told his brothers that his sheaf rose up and their sheaves bowed down to his, you can almost feel their blood boil. They knew what his dream meant. They hated Joseph, and it would have driven them crazy when Joseph told them that they would bow down to him. And actually, you don't even have to imagine how they felt. Moses tells us in verse 8, they hated him even more. Well, continuing with his oblivion, he had another dream and he told his father and his brothers about that dream. And in this dream, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to him. You can probably figure out that the 11 stars are his brothers and the sun and the moon represent Jacob and Rachel. Well, again, his brothers didn't much appreciate this dream. And Jacob seems to be a bit concerned about this dream as well because he rebuked Joseph and inquired about this dream. Did Joseph really believe that Jacob, Rachel, and his brothers would bow down to him? Well, though Joseph may have responded to Jacob, we have no record of his response. However, it seems that his brothers actually believed this dream because they were jealous. He would reign over them, and they wanted to reign over him. Additionally, though Joseph's brothers were jealous, Moses tells us that Jacob kept Joseph's dream in mind. Now, what does Moses mean by that? Well, this seems to indicate that Jacob believed the dream as well. What made him different than his sons, he looked for the time to come when Joseph would rise to power. And then when Joseph's brothers were taking care of Jacob's flock, Jacob sent Joseph to see how his brothers were doing. So Joseph did what his father asked. And when his brothers saw him approaching from a distance, they plotted to kill him and throw him in a pit. And then they devised a scheme to cover up their crime. They wanted to make it look like he was devoured by a wild animal. Not only did they hate him, but it seems they were intentionally trying to keep his dreams from coming true. In verse 20, they say, we will see what will come of his dreams. But nobody can thwart the plan of God. And we see the sovereignty of God prevent Joseph's brothers from keeping Joseph's dreams from coming true. Reuben, the oldest brother, rescued Joseph out of their hands. He convinced them not to shed his blood. He was okay if they threw him in the pit, but he didn't want them to kill him. You see, he was hoping to come back later pulled Joseph out of the pit and restored him to Jacob. It seems that he wanted to be in the good graces of his father. So you can already see God thwarting the plans of men. They tried to keep what God ordained from coming to pass, but God prevented their schemes from coming to pass. Well, when Joseph came to his brothers, they removed his robe of many colors, and then they threw him in the pit. And you can sense their arrogance and hatred for their brother because they sat down and ate. It's as if they're gloating or celebrating what they've done. And then they sold Joseph to the Midianites for 20 shekels of silver. And the Midianites took Joseph to Egypt. 
Well, obviously, Reuben wasn't there when the brother sold him into slavery because verse 29 says that he returned to the pit and saw that Joseph wasn't there. When Reuben saw that Joseph was gone, he tore his clothes, which was a sign of dismay. And then Reuben returned to his brothers. Then they dipped Joseph's robe in goat's blood and they sent it to their father, asking him to identify it. Jacob confirmed that it was Joseph's robe and Joseph had been killed by a fierce animal and he mourned the loss of Joseph. Meanwhile, after the Midianites arrived in Egypt, they sold Joseph to Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. That's the end of chapter 37, and Moses takes a pause from Joseph's story, and then he shifts to the story of Judah and Tamar in chapter 38. Judah took a Canaanite woman as a wife, and over time she had three sons. Years later, Judah took a wife for the firstborn son, and her name was Tamar. Verse 7 says that this son of Judah was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and God put him to death. Now, let me pause here for a moment and ponder on what that verse just said. The Lord put him to death. Many Christians don't like this. They tend to think that God is Mr. Nice Guy, and he would never do anything like that. He would never put someone to death. But here it is, right there in verse 7. And we forget that God is a holy God, and he hates wickedness. And Judah's first son was wicked in the eyes of God, so God put him to death. God is just and has the right to do that. And we have to be careful that we don't impose our view of God onto him, making him into a God that he is not. To assume that God would never do something like this is a distortion of who God is, because verse 7 says that he did this. In fact, we've already seen that God pours out his wrath on sinful man. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? In hundreds of years after Genesis, God destroyed cities and took the lives of people as he gave the land of Canaan to the Israelites, just as he promised Abraham. But not only that, in the future, God is going to pour out his wrath on the wicked. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. When Jesus returns, he will call us from the grave. Those in Christ will enter eternal glory with God. However, those outside of Christ will be raised from the dead to be eternally judged by God. They will be in hell forever. So with this in mind, taking the life of a wicked man is nothing compared to what God is going to do in the future. Now, returning to Genesis chapter 38, in verse 8, Judah told his second son to have a child with Tamar. Now, this may seem strange for Judah to demand this from his son, but there's a reason for this. First, look at how Judah states this in verse 8. He was to perform the duty of a brother-in-law to Tamar. So, it seems he was to take Tamar as a wife to keep her in the family. It seems to be a measure of protection for Tamar. But second, the reason for this was to keep the bloodline intact on behalf of the dead. John Calvin says, Although no law had hitherto been prescribed concerning brother's marriage, that the surviving brother should raise up seed to one who was dead, it is nevertheless not wonderful that, by the mere instinct of nature, men should have been inclined to this course. For since each man is born for the preservation of the whole race, 
If anyone dies without children, there seems to be here some defect of nature. It was deemed, therefore, an act of humanity to acquire some name for the dead, for which it might appear that they had lived. So since the first son didn't have a child with Tamar, it was the responsibility of the brother to keep his bloodline intact. However, in this case, the brother refused to comply with his father's demand. In fact, it seems that he was acting selfishly and perhaps resentfully toward his brother, because verse 9 says that he did what he did so as not to give offspring to his brother. Well, this didn't bode well for him because God put him to death. And then after this, Judah told Tamar to remain in his house as a widow till his youngest son grew up. It seems, however, that Judah wasn't completely forthcoming with Tamar. He was actually withholding his youngest son from her, and verse 11 tells us why. Judah was afraid that he would die just like his brothers. Then we see in verse 14 that the younger son had grown up, and Judah prevented his marriage to Tamar. Tamar, on the other hand, complied with Judah's request, and she remained in Judah's house as a widow. What happened next also indicates that Judah intentionally withheld his son from Tamar. Verse 12 tells us that Judah's wife died, and some time after that, Judah went to a town called Timnah, which was west of Jerusalem, and would be hundreds of years later in the land of Judah. And when Tamar heard that he was going to Timnah, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil. She then waited for Judah near the town to which he was headed. And Judah saw her and thought she was a prostitute. And he asked to lay with her, and she agreed for a price, a young goat from the flock. And since he didn't have the young goat with him, she asked if he would give her a pledge until she received it. So he gave her his signet, his cord, and his staff. And upon agreement, he laid with her. And afterward, Tamar left and put her widow's garment back on. Judah then had a friend take the young goat to the woman to get his pledge back. However, the friend couldn't find her. And when he asked about her, he was told that there was no prostitute. The friend then returned to Judah and told him that he didn't find her. Then sometime later, someone told Judah that Tamar had been immoral because she was pregnant. And Judah ordered her to be burned. When they brought her out, she said that she was pregnant by the man that these items belonged, and she revealed the signet, the cord, and the staff. And Judah recognized him immediately. He knew that he was the father of the child, and he admitted that Tamar was more righteous than he was because he didn't give Tamar to his youngest son. Now, this seems like a strange place to put this chapter in the middle of the Joseph story. However, we get a glimpse of the ancestry of Jesus. You might think that Jesus came from this pure line of humans because he's the son of God, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is from the line of Judah, Yes, this guy that we just read about. Wouldn't God want to save Jesus' reputation and have him come from a family with little or no baggage? After all, Judah got his daughter-in-law pregnant, and it's through this line that Jesus would come. Well, let's face it, God doesn't have much to work with because all mankind is evil. But that should comfort us. If this is the line that Jesus came from, perhaps God can extend grace to you and me. Well, and of course he does. But Judah and Tamar aren't the only questionable people in the line of Jesus. Take a look at Matthew chapter 1. There we see the genealogy of Jesus. And in this genealogy, only five women are mentioned, four of which are in the Old Testament, 
Tamar being one of them. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite. Neither one of them were Israelites. But you also see Bathsheba, but she's not listed by name. She's listed as the wife of Uriah. And Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba that David had killed in order to cover his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. But not only that, you see wicked kings, such as Manasseh, one of the kings of Judah hundreds of years after Judah died. 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 2 says that he did evil in God's sight, including sacrificing his own son as an offering, yet he's in the line of Christ. You see the grace of God in the genealogy of Jesus, God including misfits and wicked men in his line. Again, what else did God have to work with? Anyway, Genesis chapter 39 returns to Joseph, who at this place in the story was in Potiphar's house. Verse 2 gives us an important clue. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And it's important to recognize that God gets the credit for Joseph's success. Verse 3 tells us that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and caused him to succeed. Therefore, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes. And Potiphar put him in charge of his house and all that he had. However, things took a bad turn. Potiphar's wife was attracted to Joseph and she tried many times to seduce him. But Joseph was an honorable man and would have nothing to do with dishonoring Potiphar. Well, one day Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and he fled, leaving his garment in her hand. And then she called the men of her household and accused Joseph of trying to seduce her. So Potiphar threw Joseph in prison. Now, it's important to remember here that all of this is happening according to the sovereignty of God. Joseph didn't slip through God's fingers, and Potiphar didn't throw God a curveball. Joseph went to prison because it pleased God to carry out his plan this way. We tend to think that God would never let these bad things happen to anyone, but nothing happens apart from the sovereignty of God. Now, I'm going to add a spoiler alert here. Take a look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Speaking to his brothers after Jacob died, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He's speaking to the time when his brothers wanted to kill him, but they sold him to the Midianites instead. God kept his brothers from killing him by causing Reuben to intervene. Remember how God thwarted their plan when Reuben prevented them from killing him? Instead, God had the brother sell him in order for him to go to Egypt. And we'll get to this in the next several episodes, but long story short, God rescued Jacob and his family because Joseph was in Egypt. And by rescuing Jacob and his family, God preserved the line of Christ, which he must do in order to keep his promise in Genesis chapter 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush Satan's head. Or to put it another way, God promised Satan that he will lose by the seed of the woman. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman who crushed Satan's head. And he came through the line of Judah, a son of Jacob. So God kept his promise to Satan, in fact, by sending Joseph, another son of Jacob, to Egypt. Therefore, God is in absolute control of the events of Joseph's life, keeping him alive, selling him in slavery, putting him in prison, and what we will see later, raising him to a position to save Jacob and his family, thus preserving the line of Christ 
and keeping his promise to destroy Satan. Genesis 39 concludes with the prison keeper finding favor with Joseph. And the prison keeper put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners because he trusted Joseph. Again, Joseph found favor with the prison keeper because God caused him to succeed. So as the story of redemption unfolds through Genesis, we see God keeping his promise to Abraham. He's building a great nation through him. And through this great nation, the seed of the woman will come. And this seed of the woman will defeat Satan. But we also see a couple other things. God works through sinners to bring about his plan of redemption. Every person in the line of Christ is of questionable character. Yet through sinful man, Jesus would be born. He's not a sinner, but he is human. Finally, we see the sovereignty of God in action. As the brothers tried to thwart God's plan of raising Joseph up to power, he thwarted their plan. They wanted to kill him, but God preserved him. And through their wicked plans, God's plan to preserve Jacob's family succeeded. God is a promise-keeping God, and he is absolutely sovereign. When we look at the cross of Christ we can see that God kept his promise to Satan. He's defeated him. And because God is a promise-keeping God and is absolutely sovereign, we can trust him. And we can rest in Christ because Christ fulfilled the plan of God by crushing Satan through his perfect life, his death, and resurrection. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.